Welcome to the Clubhouse with Shane Bacon. I am your host, Shane Bacon, and got a great one this week. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Rick Riley is on the podcast for the first time. Uh, you guys all know Rick from Sports Illustrated days and his jobs at ESPN and uh, basically his contributions to the games of golf with all of his books. He's got a new one that comes out on Tuesday, on April 2nd, uh, Commander and Cheat, How Golf Explains Trump. And when you hear that, I think uh, politics creep in your mind, of course. It's really more of a fun read about all of these wacky stories about Donald Trump and golf. And sure, there's some stuff in there that maybe doesn't make Donald Trump look great. There's also some stuff in there that makes you laugh at it. So uh, no matter where you sit on the football field, if you're way to the left or way to the right, I think you'll enjoy it. I read the book in probably four days, couldn't put it down, and um, I, uh, I recommend it to people. And you'll hear us uh, mention a few of the stories throughout the podcast. Rick was great. But if you don't want to listen to political talk, and again, it's not political talk, but sure, there are some undertones there, just skip past the part about the book and just get into Rick. We talked about his covering the 1986 Masters as his first gig for Sports Illustrated. We talked about the current landscape of golf. We talked about his, uh, his up and down relationship with the internet and how it's always been a little tumultuous there. I mean, he gave some great stories, and there was an unbelievable story about Brookline and the 1999 Ryder Cup that he said he didn't share in his gamer. And I'm not sure if it's ever been out on the internet before. So you'll definitely want to listen to that. It's awesome. It involves Ben Crenshaw and the putt and Justin Leonard and all that stuff. So Rick was great. I think you'll enjoy the whole thing. But if, again, if you don't want to listen to the parts about the book, you can just skip past that part and get into some great, great golf talk with a guy that's covered golf for you know, 20, 30 years. Of course, this week's podcast is brought to you by Titleist and the all-new Pro V1 and Pro V1X. They've been redesigned for more speed, more precision, and more consistency than ever before. And if you compare the two models, the Pro V1 has a softer feel, lower flight than the Pro V1X. The Pro V1X, the one that I play, has a higher flight with more spin and a firmer feel. Both models continue to provide proven drop-and-stop greenside control, lasting durability, and unsurpassed quality. And for the first time ever in 2019, the Pro V1 and the Pro V1X are available in yellow. And I took some to Hawaii, and it was awesome. Loved it. I, uh, I got a few compliments. I, you know, it's funny is people don't know it's a Pro V, and, uh, and uh, that's always a nice little surprise. But played with it the other day. One of the things I love about the yellow golf ball is you don't really have to mark it. I mean, I have my name on the side of it stamped on there, so I don't really need the marks. If you're the only guy in the group playing the yellow ball, you know where it is at all times. So check out the yellow Pro V1 and Pro V1X. It is awesome. Prove how good you can be to get the new Pro V1 or Pro V1X on your next round and get it in yellow. Just get it in yellow. Get a sleeve. Play 18 holes with it. See if you like it. See if you notice any difference. And, uh, and if nothing else, again, you are a different person in the group than maybe the other three wide golf balls you'll see out there. So that is a lot of fun from Titleist with the new Pro V1 and Pro V1X. I mentioned Hawaii. I was out uh, there last week for five days. Got a chance to play the Four Seasons course there at Hualapai. Uh, actually got a chance to go across the street and play Nenea, which is a David McClay kid golf course that's awesome. The Four Seasons course is so much fun. Uh, that, was a, uh, that was a great trip. I'd never been to Hawaii before. And uh, let me tell you, I could do that. I could do Hawaii for about nine months. I mean, you know, you go out there for nine months, come back to the mainland if you get a little bit of that island fever. But uh, I was all in. Two thumbs up. The resort was unbelievable. The golf courses were great. They had the, uh, the Champions Tour event that opens the season on that golf course. And uh, with their friendly fairways, the greens are a little undulated. But uh, you can see why those guys go out there and fire some numbers. Because if you hit it in the fairway, you can make some serious birdies. And uh, I like the fact that the golf courses aren't massively packed. I feel like you could kind of cruise around 
uh, have a couple of uh, have a couple of brewskis cruise around in about three hours, and uh, and that's a good way to do it. That's uh, that's what we did. So uh, m- I would highly recommend if you ever have a chance to go to that Four Seasons there because it was absolutely out of this world. Big thanks to all the people there for helping us out. That's enough for me. Let's get to the one and only Rick Riley. And we welcome into the clubhouse somebody that uh, when I started this podcast a couple of years ago, Rick Riley, I had you on my short list of people that I would hope at some point I'd get to interview. And uh, we're doing it because you've got something to plug, gosh dang it. You've got a book, Commander (laughs) in Cheat, How Golf Explains Trump. It comes out April 2nd, which is today, Tuesday. So if you want a good book about golf, about the president, and really a mix of all sorts of personalities in and around the game of golf that have been involved with Donald Trump over the years, make sure you pick it up. Rick, how is it going? I know you've been on it. You've been, you've been out on the road pushing this thing. Yeah. Hey, I'm sorry about the two years. I, I don't know where I was. I wasn't doing anything important. Well, you, I would you, have around. You, you know, you're in Italy, you're in <laughs> California, you got stuff going on. And then you were out on the road last year with golf and you were doing a lot of it for this book. It's uh. I finished the book. I, I couldn't put it down. My wife was getting annoyed at me because we're supposed to be reading baby books at this point. But I love the way it weaved through golf. And it takes you way back to when you played with Donald Trump and you were supposed to caddy for him for one of your books. You didn't get a chance to. I know you had people murmur around you about the president, his golf game. When did it go from here's a story about Donald Trump to I could turn this into a book? Well, you know, um, we live in Italy uh, three months a year since I retired, and uh, I was sitting there minding my own business, trying to set the world pasta slurping record. <laughs> and, and I read this tweet from him where he said, Mark Cuban's a wimp. I can beat him easy, easy. I've won 18 club championships. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> That's not true because he told me how he does it. He, whenever he opens a new golf course, you know, he, he owns 15 and operates another four. He plays the first round by himself and calls that the club championship. And I'm like, you can't say those are club championships. <laughs> so then I made a couple of calls and said, I mean, has he won a bunch that I don't know about? And uh, this guy told me, no. In fact, uh, I was with him once and he came into the clubhouse and saw that they'd played the club championship without him. And some guy had won, whatever his name was, Tom Schmertz. And he said, oh, I beat that guy all the time. Put my name up instead. And so the guy had to take down a little plaque and made a new plaque for him. And so I was like, you can't, I mean, I don't, I don't know much about politics, Shane. I don't, but I know about golf. Right. And you can't go around saying you've won tournaments that weren't even held. And so there was more that was like one time he won one, when he was in Philadelphia and they played it at Bedminster, um, one time he won one when he was playing the other course at Bedminster and they played it on the old course and he was playing the new and he came in and said, Oh, I'd have beat that guy. So you can't. And so, okay. If he had done that once, but he, then he started saying it in at all his tour stop at all his uh, stops on the campaign trail. I'm a winner. One time he said, and those are, those, I've won 18 club championships and those are against the best guys in the club. So that's with no strokes. And I'm like, wait a minute. So then I found out that a bunch of them are super seniors. Right. Club championships. So I'm like, I wasn't offended so much as a voter as I was as a golfer. Like, you don't get to do that. 
You know, it's it's funny. I, I, last year, you know, and, and you mentioned this, you know, or I guess now it had been a couple of years ago, we had the, the Women's Open, and it was at Bedminster. You mentioned this a lot in the book. Uh, you talked a little bit about the, the ideal of having a major championship at his golf courses, and so far this is as close as he's been to having one there was the Women's Open a couple of years ago. And I was told before that week started, they somebody told me, go look at the plaque in there, the club championship plaque, and his name will be atop the plaque. And what and he said, just see if you can figure something out weird about it. And what I figured out was <laughs> the first club championship was before the club opened. So he he basically said, yes. you know, I won in 2011 or 2009, and the club officially opened in 2010. So, you know, I've heard this stuff, and, and I know some of the people, you know, I'm friends with some of the people you talked about in the book. You had a chance to chat a little bit with Brad Faxon about his round with Tiger and Dustin Johnson and, and, and President Trump as he was president. I heard the story about the two balls in the water. Unfortunately, he didn't tell it on the podcast. But a lot of these stories, and I think you did a good job of kind of painting this picture, is people tell you these stories with a smile. It's almost as if they think that's just the way he is on the golf course. I don't really, I didn't really get the feeling that people were that offended by it as much as they just kind of accepted it. Well, yeah, exactly. So just just to do do facts, and, and he's played he's played golf with Trump a few times, and I said, so what's it like? And he goes, oh, it's you know he's so much fun. You play so fast, and he cheats, and it's kind of fun <laughs> to see the cheating because you've heard so much about it. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And he says, well, it's me and Trump versus Dustin Johnson and Tiger Woods, and they're letting us play from the whites, and they're from the backs because they're so long, and Trump's getting eight shots. And so I'm like, yeah. And he said, well, on this one hole, both Tiger and Dustin are left on the left half of the fairway. And we're way over right. And Trump hits his approach shot and chunks it into the water. And he says to me, Brad, throw me a ball. They didn't see. <laughs> so Jackson throws him a ball sort of laughing. And Trump chunks that into the water. So then they run, they take the cart. And he's always got this really fast cart that he rigs up. And he put him, dropped in front of the lake, knocks it on. Meanwhile, Tigers hit it to like a foot, like it's kicking birdie for a three. So uh, Trump goes, what's everybody, uh, uh, so Tiger goes, what's everybody lying here? And um, Faxon goes, well, I'm, I'm, I'm putting for four or whatever. He had like a 20-footer. Mr. President, what are you putting for? And Trump goes, this is for a four for a three. <laughs> and I'm like, well, not really. You should be putting for a seven. Right, right. But, um, yeah, that's it. So was... says, it's just, so I, I was just thinking the, the, the gall it takes to try to cheat Tiger Woods. I mean, that's pretty big stones. <laughs> hey, I was, hey, over this... Jackson t- talked about it like it was really fun, and he loves telling the story. Yeah, it, it, you have so many people that talked. I mean, you had people that worked with the president. You had people that worked for his business, worked at his golf courses. I love that you went in the Bedminster Caddyshack and, and talked to those guys, and you even mentioned in it, these guys are smart enough not to give me their names. Was it hard to get people to speak on this subject? Because it is, you know, when he's Donald Trump doing this, that's one thing. But when you're the president of the United States, it takes a completely different leap. Was it tough to get people to talk? Did you have to well, nudge them, or were they willing to open up? No. Everybody talks. Everybody's got a story. What it was tough to do is get them to give me, let me use their name. Because I like, like, I got all kinds of guys I know in L.A. Because he, he used to come to L.A. a lot and come and play. And would cheat like crazy. And like, oh, that's a great story. Can I use your name? No. <laughs> like, why not? And they'd always say the same thing. I don't want to be audited. 
or I don't want all the people in red hats finding me out and bombing my house. And I'm like, well, what do you think is going to happen to me? <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> that's, why you got, that's why you have that Italy so, bungalow. Yeah, exactly. So they all had stories. They all wanted to talk, but they refused to let me use their names. So it was hard. Like, like one of the guys that had a great story and then let me use his name was Tarico. Mike Tarico from NBC used to be at ESPN. <laughs> and I don't know if you remember reading the story, but he's, he and um, I think it's uh, Jaws are playing Trump and Gruden. And Tarico hits the five wood of his life, par five, blind green, crushes it. Both he and the caddy are like whooping, like that's the best shot I've ever hit. And when they get up there, it's not near the pin. It's not even on the green. It's 50 feet left in a bunker. And the caddy's like, no way. This had to hit a drone or something. How could he possibly do that? (laughs) And they were so disappointed. And, of course, Dorigo took two scoops to get out and makes a seven. And and he just couldn't couldn't figure it out. And after, uh, you know, they paid up and everything, the caddy snuck, snuck over to Tarico and said, I saw Trump take your ball and throw it in the bunker. <laughs> well, like, you, you, how bad do you need to win? Right. You're going to take this 13 handicap and rob him of the best shot of his life. Well, it, it, you, you said this in the book a few times. It's never about the prize for Donald Trump in golf. It's never about the money he's going to win. I think you even mentioned there, it rarely even, you know, basically changes hands at times if it's a $10 Nassau or something. But it's about the idea of quote-unquote winning, and that is the important part. And what I find so funny, and it goes back to a little bit of what we said earlier with the basically the approach for a lot of these people to play with Trump where it's very positive, is if you and I had a guy at our club that cheated all the time, you wouldn't want to play with them. You would never play with them. He would be absolutely blackballed. But here, it's almost like it's part of his approach to the game, and people just accept it. And it's, and it's almost like, I want to be out there and see what it's like in person. I think that's what Rory mentioned, was I just wanted to see how it was. And uh, and that's almost yeah, part pa- of the yeah, appeal. Paxton. Oh, Rory said that. Yeah, you're right. Um, well, going back to what you just said, so I've talked to a lot of guys at Wingfoot. That's the only club he belongs to that he doesn't own. And almost everybody said the same thing. We, we won't play with him. Okay. He cheats. Right. We're not going to play with a cheater. And there's this whole incident where he told me, Trump told me he punched a guy out on the 10th green or right. something. But they tell a completely different that he tried to cut in front of this group because he plays fast and he didn't ask permission. And then there was a little shoving. And uh, I think he got suspended for three months. And the Trump tells it completely different. But you're right. He cheats to win. Now, I played with Clinton when he was president, and he cheats. But it was a different kind of cheating. It, wasn't nothing, it was nothing to do with winning. It was like, this game confounds me, and I'm going to keep... What he would do is he would take what we call billigans. <laughs> we started calling them billigans because he'd hit his shot. And, you know, Secret Service, SWAT guys everywhere. He's got 24 clubs in his bag. That's cheating. He hit his shot, and he's like, it would be way weak, right? Kind of a weak, cutty thing. And then he'd hit again, and he'd hit again, and he hit five and six shots, and then he'd play his first. But it was never to make you the loser and him the winner. It was always just because he doesn't get to play much, and he was trying to figure out the game. And so, yeah, they both cheat. But I say, 
it's kind of like the guy that goes into the bank to steal the pen versus the guy that goes in to steal the vault. Right, you know? <laughs> right. Well, it's it's a, it's a book about golf, I would say, first. I mean, I think you talk about how important golf has always been to you and the moral of the sport and how with everything in this world that's crazy, you can always always lean on golf as something you can trust in. You know, you've got to call the penalties on yourself. If you ground a club in a hazard, it's on you to say something. And we've had big moments uh, in golf. You wrote a column famously for Sports Illustrated out in my neck of the woods out in Arizona about a guy that had to call a penalty and disqualify himself because I think his son's friend picked up the bag for one, at one moment and it was an extra caddy. And uh, I actually ran into that rules official one time and brought your name up, and I think he, he rolled his oh, eyes geez. at me. Yeah, it was down well, in Tucson. Tell the story. So he's, a, I think it's the Arizona Mid-Am. It was the Mid-Am. And this guy's winning by 10 shots. He's killing the field. He's killing the field. He's on 18. His son's been caddying the whole time. But his son had this sort of special needs friend who uh, wanted to walk with him on the last hole. So they said, yeah, come on, walk. And... Uh, the, and the son said, Dad, could he carry um, the putter? Could he carry the putter to the green for you? And the dad says, sure. Well, that breaks the two-caddy rule. And he was disqualified. But that's golf. We call our own penalties on ourselves. There was a high school girl that did it. She realized she after the tournament was over, she'd been handed the trophy that she forgot a shot, even though she won the state championship by six. She came in and said, I'm, I signed an incorrect card on DQ. We call our own penalties. It's the game of honor because the, the, the sizes are so big. I have to trust that you, Shane, are not going to kick it out of the rough right. on that side of the fairway. Why I'm trying to hit it out of the woods on this right side. We all trust each other. You would rather cut off your arm than cheat. You'd for sure rather lose. But for some reason... That didn't get through to him, and he just – he, just, I mean, I don't know if you read the quote from Brian Marsal, who's the chairman of the Wingfoot Open in 20, 2020. He said he played with him once. He said, Brian, you see those two guys? Because Brian was his partner. And Marsal's like, yeah, they're going to cheat, so we're going to cheat. <laughs> and Marsal said, I think he just feels like the world is going to cheat him anyway, so he's going to cheat him before they can – Cheat him. It's kind of like the Lance Armstrong defense. Like, hey, I had to cheat because the whole field cheats. But there's a big difference in golf. Not many people cheat. Right, exactly. But I would say, I think the National Golf Foundation said 86% of people did not cheat other than a mulligan on the first hole. And so, so I don't know where he got this idea that you can just cheat like a mafia accountant, <laughs> but that's what he thinks. Well, and, and, and again, I, the, the kind of the point I was going with with the idea about this being a book about golf and honor more than it is about uh, President Trump is I'm sure when people see the title or they listen to you chat about it or they look up excerpts online, they're going to approach it politically. And something that I think is important to tell people is no matter what side of the football field you're on, if you're on the five-yard line on this side or the five-yard line on this side politically, I feel like this book is entertaining for everybody. And I don't ever feel like you went all in on President Trump as a human being. It was more you were just kind of presenting all of these stories from all of these decades about something that is very important to him. I mean, if you were going to list things that Donald Trump loves, <laughs> golf would be very near the top of the list. And you, I mean, you pointed out his 
his interest and how much he's done for the LPGA Tour all the time. It's something that I've, I've spoken about a lot. But, you know, I, I played Fairy Point a few years ago. He had a, a hole-in-one plaque on one of the tees, and it said inaugural round at Fairy Point, Donald J. Trump, hole-in-one, 147, 7-iron. And the first thing I thought was, well, that's bullshit. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the first well, thing that came into my head. And that was it's before funny was you should mention that because I tried and tried because I heard from three different people who said it was bullshit. But no one could say for sure. I heard the, you know, he has this famous caddy that kicks it around, pushes it in holes, throws it out of bunkers. And nobody said they saw it go in, but nobody said they didn't see it go in. So... <laughs> That, that whole fairy point thing is hilarious because so he's for people that don't know in the Bronx, um, Trump operates the Bronx fairy point golf course. And he got up there. The, remember the Tuesday, of the U S open at Shinnecock and, uh, Eric Trump came and Donald Trump jr. And Dustin Johnson came right all the way from Shinnecock to the Bronx to open this clubhouse, which wasn't quite ready to open. But anyway, Eric goes, we are so busy here. We're so busy, you can't get a tea time. <laughs> so I said, hmm, let me check that. So for that Sunday, I could get a tea time from 9.30 to 3.30, any time I wanted on the website. <laughs> so the, 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 the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But you're right. It's not meant to be a political book. It's about his golf empire. For instance, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard him talk about Trump Philly, which is actually in New Jersey, it's five minutes from Pine Valley. Right. The acknowledged number one course in the world. He constantly tells people, my Trump Philadelphia is better than Pine Valley. And even people at Pine Valley will tell you that. And so I called Tom Fazio, <laughs> who's his buddy, and, his, and I said, is that true? Because you worked on both courses. And he said, you know who tells him that it's better than Pine Valley? His caddy. <laughs> so when he says people... <laughs> That's who he thinks. And so when they ask him, why do you think it's better than Pine Valley? Trump Philadelphia has never even been ranked in the top 25 courses in New Jersey. And he said, same soil. Same soil. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, well, it's <laughs> the same soil. Okay. So my, 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 my apartment in, in, in the Hell's Kitchen should be worth the same thing as Park Avenue because it's the same soil pretty much. It's really fascinating. I, I, I urge people, pick up the book, read it, read it with a with an open mind, I would say, because it's very fun to enjoy the stories. And like I said, they're good-natured stories. I mean, when you read, now you, there's some stuff in there where people were upset or mad or, or they had bad experiences, but, you know, and there were, there were communities and countries that had bad experiences with the yeah. Trump business and golf. But some of the stories about just the approach to it, you mentioned the fast card. I, it, it kept conjuring up, you know, every clubhouse in America has that sign that says, you know, the, the man with the fastest cart never has a bad lie. I kept thinking about that as I was reading through some of the stories. Yeah, the Mickey Mantle quote. Yeah, his, his, his double uh, his double speeded golf cart. But it was a lot of fun. It, it's, it's something that you like to write about. You've always loved writing about golf. The smaller the ball, the better the story. And you've written different <laughs> right. pieces about golf over the years. Why, why is it that golf has always just kind of lit a fire under you, Rick Riley, when there are so many sports out there and you of course have written about a lot of them? Cause it's so confounding. It's just sitting there, you know, of all the other sports you cover, like I've covered, you know, you, you, you struck out cause the guy threw the greatest curveball you've ever seen, or, you know, you, you lost the football game because the, the, the block, the tackle and the guard on the right side couldn't block. 
block the guy. Or, you know, your, your, your dunk shot got blunked, blocked because the guy was shacked. But in golf, there's nothing preventing you from being great except yourself. And it's so maddening and amazing. Like, I played yesterday, and this guy's a 30 handicap. He's a 30, right? He hits this chip. Tiger Woods couldn't have done it better. It landed <laughs> on the top. It kissed the top of this berm, trickled down, took the break, went right in the hole. And I said, you know, that's the great thing about golf. For that one moment, and maybe never again, you're as good as Tiger Woods. You could never, like, you know, this guy's 58 years old and 40 pounds overweight. You'll never be as good as Tom Brady at anything. Right. But in golf, for that one moment, you can do it. And then, then he went right back to what he was before. But I think it's it's just so addictive that way. And it's it's probably why you see so many of these athletes, quote-unquote, give it a run. I mean, we had Tony Romo do it over the weekend. Of course, he missed the cut by a million. And we've had a lot of these, yeah. a lot of these professional athletes that it's like they believe – that they're better at golf than they are. And, and, and it's a little bit of what we saw with Trump and his handicap and not plugging all of his, his scores into his gen. I mean, I'm the opposite. You know, I mean, I played terrible on Friday. One of the worst rounds I've played in, in a year. And I was the first thing I did was plug that score into my gen because I want it to, if anything else, help my handicap go the other way because God knows I need that to happen. Is it true that your – was it your – All right, well, well let, let me get back to that real quickly. So <laughs> – you know, you've heard of a sandbagger, right? Right. A sandbagger is a guy who's really a four, but he pretends to be a 12 so he can win bets. But there's also such a thing as a cocktail handicap or vanity handicap where you're really a 12, but you tell people you're a four because it sounds better at, co- at, at parties. But, but this guy, so we know that in his first, in 2017 as president, he played something like, 80 times. And yet for 2017, he only posted two rounds for 2016. He only posted once to get his 20 rounds to get to his 2.8 handicap. Cause you can go on gin.com and look him up. Donald Trump, Florida. It's taken him eight years to cherry pick 20 rounds. That'll spit out a 2.8. And the other thing, Shane, is if you look at it, he screws with the slopes, right? Like, I don't know what your course is for a slope. It's very rare to play a slope course that's 140 or above. Oh, unless you're I, I, don't want, I don't want to. I don't know, Beth Page Black or something. <laughs> right, but, right. Yeah. Almost every one of his slopes is over 140. And yet, I know his caddies have told me, no, he's playing regular tees or whatever. So, so he's not only lying about what he posts, he's lying about the slope of a course so the computer spits out 2.8. Okay. So you're a vanity handicap. Why you would do that, I don't know. But then he still has to win. So you can imagine the level of cheating it takes to make up for the – and Faxon says he's about a 10. Right. Dustin Johnson says he's about a 9. Uh, Annika Sorensen said 10. He says he's a 3. So he's got to make up those seven shots just to get even with you. So you can imagine how much cheating. So that's why at Wingfoot, the caddies call him Pele – because he kicks the ball so much. He's got to kick it constantly so that he has any kind of chance. It, it, it's wild. You, you made a great comparison of the book. You said uh, you said he's a 2.8. Jack Nicholas currently is a 3.6. And you said, who would you rather have on your team? <laughs> Jack Nicholas is a 3.6. And uh, I think I'm probably going to lean uh, towards Jack on my team if I was going to play for some yeah, serious stuff. I dough. think so. 
But isn't that incredible? I mean, there's not many places. You can look up anybody's handicap. You can see what kind of, first of all, you can see what kind of golfer they are, or what you really look at, you can see if they're honest or not. I mean, it's, Jack Nicholas didn't take eight years to come up with his 20 scores to put in gin, you know? <laughs> Want to take a quick break from Rick to let you know about ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard, multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process, but today hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash clubhouse. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As the applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each of them and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. And ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80%, 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners, people like you, can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash clubhouse. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash clubhouse. ZipRecruiter.com slash clubhouse. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And I also wanted to let you know about Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, cryptos, all commission-free, while other brokerage charges up to $10 for every trade. Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees. You can trade stocks and keep all your profits. Plus, there's no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. You can view easy-to-understand charts and market data and place a trade in your four ta- in, in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stocks and collections such as 100 more was popular, and you can make it really fit what you want. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of the clubhouse a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. All you got to do is sign up at clubhouse.robinhood.com. That's clubhouse.robinhood.com. All right, back to Rick. Well, it's a good segue because I did want to ask you a little bit about just your career through golf. Uh, and and it, and correct me if I'm wrong here. Was your first gig or one of your first gigs at SI the 1986 Masters? Is that right? Oh my God! Yeah, that was my first golf tournament for Sports Illustrated. I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, I covered pro golf, you know, the Denver Post, LA Times. But the first one I get, this is after Jenkins moved to Golf Golf uh, Digest, right? Is the '86 Masters. But it gets worse, right? So we have this. We have this piece of reporting that tells us Jack Nicholas is broke. So I got to go up to Jack Nicholas. He's coming out of the champion's locker room at Augusta. I'm, my knees are literally shaking. I want to just fall through the floor. I introduce myself and I said, Jack, uh, Mr. Nicholas, I hate for this to be my first question, but we hear you're broke. <laughs> I mean, this was my hero, my dad's hero. And he goes, son, come back into the locker room and let's talk about it. Wow. And he was really great. And he took me inside and he tried to explain to me about he was not broke. He was just over leveraged and a couple of deals had gone south and he was going to be fine. And that was all going to be sort of the middle of the piece. And then he set the world on fire and won the Masters at age 46. 
Yeah, one of the things you wrote in uh, in one of your books, I'm not exactly sure which one it was, but you had uh, you you answered some questions early in, in the front parts of the book, and somebody asked you a question, and you said, you know, always try to find something that not everybody's going to say. You know, don't use cliches, things like that. And it was something I tried to implement in my writing. But you you mentioned at 86, it was a scoreboard, and there was there was a man on the scoreboard, and and I think he was raising his finger or doing something, and that was kind of your starting off point for that because again you you had to find something to basically explain the craziest golf tournament that still has ever happened and uh, and I just always found that very right. interesting well, imagine people people don't realize now young people but you know back then the tournament would end Sunday we wouldn't come out until Thursday right, right. but so but, but there wasn't the internet so there was still they'd have the morning paper from their town and then USA Today, would they could read that, and then they could watch TV. So by the time I came out, I had to give them a different look at it. And so I, my one writing rule is Oscar Wilde, never, read it, never write a sentence you've already read. And so I was waiting on 18 because I wasn't able to see him play 17. Remember, he, 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 uh, he runs the putt down with, and, his, and his big putter throws up in the air and all that. And um, so I don't get to see him at 17, but there's this giant roar from 17, and we don't know what's going on on 18. And then suddenly, you know how the, the hand-lettered scoreboards at Augusta are all done by hand? So about 30 seconds later, up comes the new red nine under Nicholas's name, which gives him a one-shot lead. And the place goes crazy. But the guy that put the nine in there from behind somehow comes around to the side of the leaderboard and just sticks his arm out and starts doing like a, like a fist pump over and over. And the, and the crowd goes crazy with this guy's arm. And that's all we saw was the arm. But I loved it because it just sort of expressed the unbridled joy that the whole course was feeling like, you know, we were in Tiger at St. Louis this year. That was as close as I've ever seen to what Jack did in terms of having the entire course on your side. Right. And so that's what I led with. And uh, it just kind of gave it a, I met the guy with the arm because I was the arm. I'm like, Oh, good job. You gave me a lead. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you helped me out for my 86 story. You, you wrote right. so much about so many events, went to so many, if you were going to go back and reread something you wrote, not necessarily a column that you wrote, but maybe a piece about an event, is there one that really sticks out in your mind that maybe was greater than anything you did or maybe maybe has, has always kind of lingered with you as this great golfing moment that you got to cover? Well, good and bad. Like, the, the Masters was so huge. I can remember guys gripping their haircuts and going, you know, it's too big. I can't write right. it. I can remember, I can remember guys an hour into it still had nothing on their computers. And it was just so big because, you know, he beat Norman, he beat Kite, and Norman was supposed to be the new Nicholas. And here, this guy who hadn't done anything in, since really '82, most people thought he wouldn't even make the cut, couldn't even see the ball land, and most he had to the sun do it this guy won and he'd come from five behind on the last day. It was incredible. So I really, I really loved how that piece came out and that's on deadline. You know, deadline is a bitch. You know? Right. So that was on deadline. But then I remember, um, when I gagged 
was the Ryder Cup. I felt like I had I, I didn't get to write the lead. I was writing the columns then. Ryder Cup, Brookline, um, that incredible putt. Uh, I was sitting right next to uh, Lehman. They never did run on the guy's line because I was right there. And I remember Crenshaw grabbed me by the shoulder. We're on 17 Green, right, at the country club. And he goes, on Francis's green, Rick. On Francis's green. <laughs> and I remember that Francis we met used to hop the fence there right, at 17 right, right. and putt and then play 18 and then sneak on. On Francis's green, he had tears in his eyes. And yet somehow when I wrote the column, I forgot that. Hey, see, that's I a mulligan. Totally you, you, need, you need a mulligan. You need a Trump mulligan there, for goodness sake. I sense. need a mulligan. And I wrote something else. And I, after it came out, like, oh, what was I thinking? And sometimes you just you just screw up, you know? I, yeah, I understand. When, when you were doing the – how many years did you do columns for SI? Because it had to have been, what, 25, 30, 25 years longer? No, I was only there 23 years. Okay. But I did columns all 23 years. In fact, I think they didn't even start until I was there for a year. Okay. And I, you know, I said, you know, we got real, some really good short, short writers. We got Lee Montville. We got Steve Russian. These guys kill in 800 words. And so for a bunch of years, it was me, Montville, uh, Roy Blunt, Jr., um, and Russian doing the, that back page. And then uh, they said, why don't you just take it over? And so I think I did it by myself for 11 years or something. And, and so once you started doing that, I mean, that was a lion that constantly needed feeding, man. You'd start the week with 20 ideas and, you know, you'd be lucky to get one you liked. And, uh, but it was really fun. I mean, you really got a lot of readership and it was powerful when you did well. And it really stunk when you did badly, you know. Well, you, you know, so it, when you were, yeah, you, so that was fun. That was fun. Yeah, okay. you, you'd you'd start that on on. I mean, maybe you started on a Sunday or Monday, and deadline was what probably Wednesday, Thursday. I mean, how close were you ever to being? I don't, God, I don't have anything this week. A lot, <laughs> a lot of times. <laughs> it was brutal. That's why. Uh, well, Jim Murray, the great sports writer in L.A., he taught me something. He said, "Always have a couple ready." Nice. He said, "Have some just for the really rainy day," and. Uh, he was right, but it ended up biting my ass because uh, when I went to ESPN, I'd have my little file of three or four ideas in case a rainy day came along and there was nothing to write. <laughs> so I'm on vacation once, and they're like, hey, you got to send us a column. I'm like, I'm on vacation. Can't I have it off? <laughs> and they said, no, you need something. So I dug into my, ah, oh, good ideas I haven't written, and <laughs> I wrote it, you know, polished it up and wrote it. Turns out I'd written it before. Oh no! I forgot to take it out of the stupid, <laughs> the stupid folder. So I thought about suing myself for plagiarism. No, yeah, you should have. You should have. That'd have been an interesting. Uh, that'd have been an interesting one to take to court. You, you've had a, you've had an. I'd say an interesting relationship with the internet over the years. I mean, you of course were, and yes. I'll, I'll say it. I'd say you're probably the most known sports writer from the era that was. I mean, when I was growing up. I mean, I flipped to the back page of SI. That's what I did every single week, and I'd read your story first. I'm sure you've heard that from a million people over the years. You Thank go from you. SI to ESPN, and, of course, uh, the Internet takes off. You've got Deadspin. You've got Twitter. Uh, now you've got completely different outlets, including a lot of podcasts. How would you describe your relationship with the Internet, basically maybe since ESPN on? I guess like everybody's, it's love-hate. Um, the, the best guy I've ever seen with the Internet is Simmons. Like this guy, and you know, he's a friend of mine. I'm like, how do you know this stuff's coming? Like, 
he was like one of the first guys on Twitter. And he was one of the first guys on MySpace. And then he got off. He just knows what's coming. And, but, you know, as I always say, you know, did you have to write 8,000 words on Kevin Garnett? I mean, <laughs> he goes, oh, my, my readers just scan my stuff. I'm like, ah, I don't want to be scanned. You know, I want, to re- I want to write 800 good words. But anyway, so we differed on that. But he was really good about it. And one thing he'd always say to me is, like, I'd be in some big problem on Twitter or whatever it was. And he'd go, Rick, everything on the Internet only lasts eight seconds. Right. Just hang on. And he's right. And so it would be uh, – here, here's a good example. It would be great and it would be terrible. One time, the AD at Virginia banned signs at football games because the signs were saying, fire this coach, the head football coach they had. And I said, wait a minute, University of Virginia or Thomas Jefferson, the one he began, one of the great champions of free speech, is not going to let you guys have free speech? I said, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I said, hey, and this was on, this was on the Internet, that I think you guys should protest and wear, uh, hold up white blank signs with two minutes to go at the end of every quarter, you know, or wear t-shirts to say, this is my sign right. or, or whatever it takes. And they did, they coordinated it and they did it. And something like 20,000 kids wore white t-shirts and were held up white signs with two minutes to go. And then, so that's the power of the internet that you could affect things immediately. Right. Like I think I wrote it the day before. On the other hand, there's places like Deadspin who just live to make fun of you or catch you in a screw up or whatever. And I always thought Deadspin's logo motto should be pissed at the people who got the jobs we wanted for 20 years now, (laughs) because it's like, really, (laughs) when you're told your mom, you're going to be a sports writer. Did you think your sports writing would be just about other sports writers? Didn't you kind of want to cover real sports? So there's, there's good, there's bad, there's really good writing on the internet. There's terrible writing. There's really great tweet people on Twitter and there's really guys that are not good at it. So it's really opened up. Everybody thinks they're a sports writer now because you can blog, you can broadcast, you can, you can podcast, you can tweet. And so it's, uh, it's kind of diluted the field of sports writing. I think not that there are not terrific writers out there. There are, but there's just so many more. Yeah, I mean, it's it. it you know, it, what's interesting is, I mean, I was, uh, I'm 35. You know, when I was coming up, it was the age of, you know, when I was in college, we'd read Simmons. I mean, we'd read page two, my friend and I, and then I was introduced to Deadspin right. early, and of course, I loved it because I thought it was hilarious and different, and um, you know, there was obviously <laughs> stuff on there that they that they did that I didn't like, but there was stuff on there that they did that I really liked, and uh, and it's and it's and the internet is continually transitioning. Obviously, you, you know, you mentioned some some great writers. What I found so fun is you had this unique ability to condense stuff to one page. And my favorite English class I ever had in college, that was how we had to turn in papers. It had to be double-spaced one page. If it was two pages, you got an F. And on the flip side of that, and you mentioned Bill Simmons, could write 8,000 words about Garnett or you know Larry Bird or something like that, which I always found impossible because I just couldn't ramble on for that much and make it interesting, yet he could. And it, I, I love hearing that you guys – our pals, I think there was always kind of a little bit of like, are these guys friends or do they hate each other kind of thing? Right, but it's right. completely different approaches to a little bit of the same cause in making sports oh, you're interesting so in right. a different way. You know, you're so right because we we came up in the business completely different. Like 
when I came up in the business, um, these guys, like these old guys, were still typing on typewriters. Like, ah, how can you do anything? That's not fair. You know, right on a right on a computer. And you, you know, we had to start at the top, kid, and go all the way to the bottom. And right. you had to hand your you had to hand your paper to the Western Union guy, and you couldn't have it back. See, <laughs> so that's how it was. And we're like, eh, okay, buddy. So then, we I was the you know, not before the internet guy, and you had eight hundred words, and you had to be brief and pithy, and you still had to have an act one, act two, act three. It had to mean something. It couldn't just be a word salad. It, and you had to you had to fit it in there. It's like the old the old the old guy turns turns into paper and goes, "Sorry, it's so long. I didn't have time to be short." Because to be short and brief and pithy is hard. You've got to kill your darlings. You've got to get it down to something that boils down to the essential part of it. You know, you can't have any cliches. You can't have any bull in it. It's got to be solid. Whereas on the internet, you can go crazy. In a lot of ways, that's a lot of fun. And a lot of ways, it's really wasteful. Did you battle with that at ESPN? Was that something that you found tough at times when you were given this opportunity to maybe, hey, hey, Rick, you can write 2,000 words if you want on this thing. Was that, was that a difficult transition, or did you, were you able to yes. handle it and make it your own? It's like the guy that spends 10 years in jail and can only make the eight-footer, <laughs> but anything over 10 is just too long. He can't do it. Right. That's how I was. I'd be like, I couldn't stop writing 800 words. And my editor would be like, no, you, you can really let it out. I mean, you know, have fun with it. Go 2,000. I'm like, I can't. I just can't. And it's funny because I came up in the business as a feature writer. So you could go, you know, you could they'd give you two months. If you can imagine this, Shane. We would get two months. You could fly first class. They wanted you to take people to dinner. They wanted you to spend your expense account. And you'd write, you know, 5,000 words. And they would be choice. But, uh, but, but then when I became an 800-word guy, I just couldn't lose that habit. And even today, writing these, you know, a book, or I write screenplays now in movies, it's, it's kind of hard to let yourself go. Just a different approach, I can only imagine. You mentioned sports writing. Are you still? I know you're, you. You told me before you got going. You're retired, but you obviously are still doing stuff. Uh, are you still? Are you still very much into sports? Do you read sports? Do you still watch it on TV? I know you still play some golf here and there, but I mean, is it still a passion of yours, despite not really being involved in it like you used to be? Yeah, it's 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 maybe better. Okay. I mean, I can watch a Super Bowl now and go to my friend's house for a party and have three beers and, and run the pool and laugh. And I get to finally see the ads. I never used to have to get to see the ads because you'd be out in section 511 at the right. Super Bowl and you can't see. Yeah. And same with the masters. I always say, you know, the first 30 times you go to the masters, it's fun. And then you're kind of sick of it. These guys <laughs> like the great Dan Jenkins just died. I think he went to 56 of them or something. Crazy. I don't know how those guys do it. What? It's crazy. I mean, they they they've, they went to the gone to the and and I mean, how many iterations of Augusta National they've seen? How many iterations of the media center they've seen? And, and right. chairmen's and and the and the the range and all of these sorts of things. It's just uh, it's got to be crazy to view the sports landscape like you have from the Jack Nicholas days. You know, you know, right. with Arnold Palmer and Watson and Norman, and now you've got Tiger, and then you know we get Tiger versus Rory over the weekend. Uh, what do you feel like the golf world is right now? Do you like it more than you used to like it? Do you like it less? Do you like the personalities that are in golf? Do you wish there were more of those personalities? Oh, I like it more. 
I mean, I think there's so many more better. There's so many better players. The field is so much deeper. My God. I mean, when I first started, it was, you know, Nicholas and Floyd and Watson, and that's about it. I mean, it, it just is so much stronger now. And that's what bothers me about this Tiger infatuation. Like, the, the, you know, covering golf last year, I kept saying to other reporters, like, why are you guys riding Tiger? He's probably not even going to make the cut. Meanwhile, this kid Rory or Fowler or Justin Thomas is just lighting the place up, and there's going to be a fantastic battle between these young guys that are all terrific, and you're not even writing about them. He goes, they all, and always say the same thing, because people want to read about Tiger. But this was when he was not even coming close to breaking an egg right. some days, and you'd be like, why? And so it bothers me that people somehow think without Tiger, there's nothing to watch. This is some of the greatest golf I've ever seen. And you know, we, week after week, it's some incredible performance. And I, I'm really, I wish people would wake up to there's more to life than Tiger. Well, it's a ticking time bomb. And, I, and it's funny, I, I've, I've preached very similar things to than what you're saying that, you know, Tiger is great right now that he's involved and he's competitive and he won and, you know, he's, he's playing well and he's doing all the things he's doing, but if, what do we get, three more years out of this, five more years out of this, if we're lucky, eight more years out of this, and then he's going to go away again, and we're going to look at golf and go, okay, now what do we talk about? Because we're, we're passing over yeah. a lot of the guys you mentioned, and it's every single yeah, year. You might miss a guy that, that's doing incredible stuff. And here's my other complaint about Tiger. Why is he a comeback? Why is he a, a feel-good story? This guy's been busted twice for pills. I mean, he wrecked a perfectly great marriage with, 14, you know, at once, girls. Uh, he's, he's never been nice with fans. Why is he ever, oh, it's so great, Tiger's back. What a comeback story, comeback play. It's, all these wounds were self-inflicted. The, the knee and all that stuff was done, as, they, as we found out, trying to be a SWAT team guy or an Army Ranger guy. This wasn't a guy that got hit by a bus like Hogan. This was a guy, these were unforced errors. And, and this, his fall was, was no, like, uh, tough break. He did it to himself. So, I know, everybody wants to love Tiger. Uh, he's great fun to watch, but he's, he's not a person to admire. Well, I think there's a level of wanting to see him face this group. I think that's been, more than anything, that's they wanted true. to see if he was capable of playing against the current crop of players, which now we see he can. And I think there's a level yeah. of who will step up and do it. And the forgotten man through all of this stuff is Brooks Kepka because he's the one guy that's looking at Tiger going, I don't care. I don't care what he's doing. I'm just going to go ahead and win anyway. And I think that's been the fun thing to see is that battle. But, I mean, I, I agree with you that what, what you're saying is, I mean, it's not Nicholas in 86. It's definitely not Hogan. Uh, you know, you go back to – you can keep going back and back and back to, to certain stories over the years of players that have made right. massive comebacks in golf, and it, and it was the story. But, the, you know, the, the interest behind Tiger, I guess, is good for golf. But, again, my point is he's not 26, you know. I mean, this is – we're going to have – we have to look ahead. I mean, it's Bezos, you know. look Bezos and Amazon were looking 30 years ahead. They weren't looking two years ahead, and that's how they built the empire. <laughs> and I'm scared that right. golf is going to be this place that in three years is looking in the mirror going – okay, now what do we do? You know, and who do we talk about now? What, what's the players' names again? Because the, it, it's been pushing this down the throat. But, hey, listen, 
Well, I would love if he well, played if, well at Pebble if, Beach, just so you know. Just in case you're wondering right. about where my where my affiliation is. I know, I, I know. Everybody, you and everybody else. Well, I mean, I, would, look, I mean, just the way Trump, is, the, way, the way Donald Trump is posting scores, maybe he can turn pro. <laughs> he can get it going, Rick. I appreciate you said you're <laughs> writing scripts. Are you doing movie scripts? What are you doing? Yeah, yeah, movie scripts. So I think I think I've sold three, um, but you know, it's hard to get them made. I had one made called Leatherheads. With George Clooney, a football movie. I remember that one. And then I've got a golf movie out there it's called Missing Links based on my no- novel about four guys that play the worst course in America. And then a basketball movie set in the civil rights movement. So it's fun. It's, it's fun to branch out and try new stuff. I'm learning Italian, playing piano, doing a lot of stuff that I that doesn't require me to be in Augusta, Georgia. That's right. That's right. It's a uh, commander in sheet. How golf explains Trump. It is out. Go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever you want to go and pick it up. It's very entertaining. You'll laugh a lot. You will uh, have to set it down a couple of times because you'll be going, wait, this can't be, uh, but that's Rick Riley. Rick, I really appreciate the time. Thanks Shane. It looks like I'm a wreck. It's in the hole. It's in the hole. Well, that one was fun. A big thanks to Rick Riley for jumping, uh, jumping on the podcast. His book is available right now on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy books, you can go get it right now. You can download it on your Kindle or on your iPad, or you can get the physical version mailed to you right now. And it's definitely worth it. You're going to get some great stories from a lot of big names. I mean, that's the thing I noticed the most about the book is how many guys were willing to chat. I mean, you know, major championship winners and business people and broadcast announcers. You know, it was all these different people through Walks of Life that were, uh, that were, that were you know, chatting with a smile. I thought that was what was so funny about it. So check out the book. Big thanks to Rick. A big thanks, of course, to Titleist. Check out the new Pro V1 and Pro V1X, ZipRecruiter, and Robinhood. Give those a follow and go to those exclusive web addresses I told you. And uh, we are barreling towards the Masters. It's next week. That is wild. The Masters is next week, and we'll have some fun podcasts coming up for that. Thanks so much for listening. If you love the podcast, do me a favor. Go to iTunes. Write a review. You can give a five-star if you like. You can give four stars if it's eh, whatever. But, you know, go write a review if you like it. It's, a, it's, a, it's pretty easy. It takes you about three minutes, and it helps us out a lot. And uh, we appreciate all the things you guys do. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week, Master's Week, 